Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast coming to you live from Seattle at the conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections. I'm Ben Plumley. And I'm Yvette Raphael. Hey, aren't you impressed that I was able to get the Croy name right? I'm really, really impressed, Ben. I was going to leave that up to you in any case. So, here we are. We are at this major scientific conference that presents all the data that's of really key clinical and basic science importance in virology, in um, opportunistic infections, bacterial infections, HIV, obviously, but also... Croy, um, sorry, COVID, duh, COVID. And, and monkeypox, don't forget about that. And mpox, and we're going to cover that over the course of the next few days. But we're recording here in the media room at Croy, um, uh, just at the start of the conference, because later this afternoon, Yvette will be speaking in the opening plenary with our dear friend Tony Fauci. Um, Yvette, what are you planning to say? Uh, I hope I bring the message of women across the world to these people in the conference today. I hope I, I bring the message around HIV prevention, women's leadership, and basically what I want to do with my presentation, uh, Ben, today is just defy erasure of the role women have played in HIV research and development. I mean, we were the main factors. We are still the main reason why research happens in our countries, and we are so, so stigmatized because of that. And I don't think we give, get enough credit for, for what's happening with research and where research is going right, currently. Right. And I want to come back to that and talk about it in some detail. Um, you're speaking, you're giving the Martin Delaney presentation in the opening, opening plenary. Tell us a bit about Martin. Oh, yeah. Martin Delaney was a revolutionary activist, what we call today in South Africa a radical activist, somebody who who insisted that um, research, uh, I mean, policymakers and researchers listen and assist. And he started his own organization, Project Inform, just to get people to understand that communities need education, but also a platform for advocacy. And that is revolutionary, what Martin Delaney did uh, a long time ago and a lesson for us as women as well. Yeah, now I've got to confess, I actually met Marty in the late 90s um, and um, uh, actually at a Croy, I think it was a Croy in Denver. Um, and uh, he had a huge impact on all of us um, in driving the agenda. And of course, um, the organization that that he led, that he set up, Project Inform, was so crucial in precisely bringing information about complicated scientific advances to communities in language that they could embrace and understand. And that's sort of what we're about, yeah? Yes, and it's more more like what uh, women are doing right now in, to, in today's age, Ben, is that we know that we have to break down the science, that our communities don't understand the science and somebody has to tell them to a level of understanding for them so that they can implement what they hear and they can implement what they understand it to be. And that is why the work of Martin Delaney will forever live on with us in this conference and actually globally as advocates. Do you know, I'll just share something funny about Project Inform. Um, I volunteered for them once uh, a couple of years ago at a street fair in San Francisco called Folsom. And uh, I guess many in the community will know that that is a very particular kind of fair with um, leather and rubber and other such things. 
Um, and I was security. So, Marty, wherever you are, I was acting as security for Project Inform. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you got that role, Ben, and, 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 and I can imagine how that went, but okay. Yeah, entirely. We'll save that for another conversation. Mm-hmm. So, so what's your message? You mentioned the centrality and the importance of girls and women in the clinical response. Tell us a bit more about what you want to get across. I think, Ben, for me today is actually, like I said, it's, it's defy erasure. But more importantly is to highlight the role that women played, but also the fact that new infections in adolescent girls and young women are not going down. I have a beautiful young girl that is HIV negative and I don't want my story to be her story as a woman living with HIV. I don't want that to be for any other young person. So we have to do something about it if we want to stop new infections in adolescent girls and young women. But most importantly, the science has to focus on young girls. The science has to ensure that whatever is being developed is for young people, but we have been singing the song around vaccines for HIV and a cure for HIV for far too long. I remember for the past few years, not uh, for, 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 for two decades, when people asked me, when are we going to get a cure, that the magic word was 10 years. We don't have 10 years. But we, we, we don't have 10 years, but historically we have never been able to put girls and women centrally in the R&D agenda for HIV. And I remember whether it was some of the early Doronavir trials, whether it was uh, obviously uh, some of the early prep work, um, it was really hard to bring girls and women into the research agenda. And I think, frankly, part of that was because um, it was so much easier uh, to do the clinical trials, to get the results particularly in white gay men. And we've really had to rethink fundamentally how we do clinical trials. A lot now are done in, in Africa, particularly South Africa, where you're from. Um, and how far are we getting, do you think, with that? Yes, Ben, that is where we, we don't understand much about this. It's because all of the clinical trials happen in South Africa. Most of the trials happen in Africa and on young women and girls. So there's really no excuse why we do not have a, a, you know results and we do not get to make an impact on adolescent girls and young women. I think these are done, but I don't think the, the, the products are meant for us. If they were meant for us, I'm sure we would definitely, definitely be somewhere different than where we are today. And you can tell that we are recording live from the media center and you can you can see journalists around us doing and starting their work. Um, as you look at the conference, what is uh, what science is really intriguing to you? What do you want to look out for? Uh, it's obvious, Ben. It's 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 around vaccines. It's around cure. It's also for me to see where the science the scientist wants to go with involving young women and girls in you know the outputs and what is being uh, developed. So for me, that is importantly uh, important. But I also want to learn a little bit more about uh, broad new broadly neutralizing antibodies, BNABs, and yes, uh, we still have children being born with HIV in our countries, and that cannot happen anymore. We need to bring that down, and if that's going to be a way for us to get more information on how to develop antibodies and how that goes, I think we should try, and we should give it a try. So two things. 
The use of monoclonal antibodies in treatment is something that's really of interest to me. As you know, I live with Crohn's disease, and I had my regular monoclonal antibody infusion at the start of this week. It's an hour and a half sitting in the uh, oncology infusion center at my local hospital. And it's been fascinating to see how MABs, as we call them, are now being utilized um, because of their immune modulatory uh, function, actually to promote function in immune systems uh, in the context of COVID. But also, we've been looking at them in HIV and other other, um, uh, retroviruses. So I think this is uh, a very interesting uh, coming together, if you like, of the science. Yes, uh, most definitely. But one of the things that I've heard uh, when I went to this meeting around uh, BNAPs was the fact that that infusion is happening on a baby. And for me, that is the part that's worrying for me. And that infusion is going to take around 15 minutes with a crying baby. So we need to start talking to women. We need to start talking to communities if we want it to be a success because a baby crying for 15 minutes is not cute. No, 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 it's not. Um, <laughs> now, hope. I mean, hopefully we will see uh, some of these MABs uh, becoming oral pills. And then, of course, we have the question of making sure that we have pediatric formulations. That's always been the challenge with, uh, with HIV. Um, so... The other part of the science that I wanted to ask you about in relation to to girls and women is around the launch of this new UNAIDS coalition to eliminate uh, HIV um, transmission in children, in in babies, actually. And, And one, what's your thought about it? And two, it's sort of, it sort of feels like we've been at this or we've been advocating for this for so many decades. I think I think it's important, Ben, that we start really focusing on it on that. And I want to to just say that I'm happy for the strategy to happen right now. But it's also important for me that we include the end user right now, which are women, which are our communities. We all know that women don't make these decisions alone when it comes to 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 babies. And when I talk about that, I talk about you know, the circle, you know, the socio-ecological model uh, of how many people influence a decision a woman makes. So we need to do the groundwork now if we want to see that happening. And I really applaud for uh, these organizations who want to do that. Yeah. Your thought then around the balance between technologies designed to prevent transmission to babies and technologies designed by women, for women, to prevent HIV in the first place. Um, Are you going to be covering that in your remarks? Yes, most definitely. And it's important that we understand that these difficult terminologies, this difficult jargon, these acronyms, that we have to make sure that women understand them and that it's advocates and it's women, other women, who have... The, the ability to translate science into everyday language for people to understand and actually implement because that's one of the big things is that people need to hear your message and actually take away what works for them and go implement in their lifestyles. Yeah, um, and I guess that brings us to the question of choice. Um, it's something you've been working really firmly on. Um, you, you talk about the choice in prevention technologies can you explain a little bit about what you mean? 
Yes, uh, Ben, I, I think <laughs> for a long time have we spoken about what choice is. Choice is basically giving women enough options of products so that they can choose an option that works for them. My own diagnosis is an example for that, is that when I was diagnosed, it was during the times of A, B, and C. You know, it's abstain, condemnize, or what's the other one? Be faithful. Be faithful. I was all of the above. Cross but your legs and say no. <laughs> and I was, I was, that message did not make sense to me because I was not abstaining. I was faithful and I really did not have the power to really make sure that a condom gets used in the relationship or a condom does get used. So that message didn't, uh, it was there, did not make sense. I couldn't implement it because I had no power over that. And what happened was I got HIV in the meantime. So it's exactly what I mean is that you have to understand the message clearly or you have to give women options to choose something that works for them. So sometimes a condom does not work for a woman, a young girl who's in a relationship with an older partner. A taking medication every day like PrEP does not work for a young woman who whose parents are stigmatizing ARVs and uh, you know all of those things just don't work unless there's something a woman can choose that works for them and that is why we insist on choice people sometimes think we are choosing one or the other I'm not choosing cabelle over condoms or over the ring what I'm saying is all of those methods needs to be in a basket so that it can serve me as a woman when I get there and choose to say, all right, I can use a condom because, or I can use PrEP because, or maybe none of this works for me. Give me a ring and I can insert it, keep it a secret and not be violated by anybody because it would be my secret. Let, let's unpack some of the terms that you've used there. Uh, many of our viewers and listeners, of course, are very familiar with them, but, but many not. Yes. Now, you talked about Cabelet. That is a long-acting injectable antiretroviral, uh, Cabotegravir long-acting. Yes. Yes, and that's the injection that you would get if you want to prevent yourself from HIV. It's injected to you. It's two injections over two months. Every two months, you then come to the clinic. But here's the catch. That thing is expensive, and African governments would not pay for it, and we would not be able to afford it. So while we're waiting for the prices to go down for Cabalet, there has to be something else in the in in the you know, the basket. And when we talk about that, we talk about the Depoverine ring that is, a, uh, that is approved by our government that might be a little bit cheaper than uh, Cabotegravir and that already has so much, um, you know, support around it. Uh, young women know how to use it. Young women want to know it. And we have seen that PEPFAR is, is warming up to funding some parts of it, and we are excited about that because you, you that is our work. You say people are excited about it. One of the challenges that we had when we were meeting at the uh, World AIDS Conference in Montreal last year is that the Depivirine ring, a a product that came through the International Partnership for Microbicides, well, it hadn't got FDA approval. And as it didn't have FDA approval, um, it wasn't being purchased by, by PEPFAR. Um, in fact, the regulatory process took it through Europe, where it, it was approved. Now, there's data happening being presented here this week around 
uh, around the ring, around the, piver the, the pivoting ring. And um, I will be reporting back on that. Um, I think the important thing is to see just what real life um, uh, efficacy is rather than the clinical trial setting. Yes, but before we do that, let's give it a, a try. Let's give it an option. None of these methods that are here right now that people are using and screaming about was ever that efficacious during study. So let's give the ring a chance. I think uh, the idea that the FDA did not approve it uh, is, is okay. It, does, it doesn't take anything away from us except the fact that we want PEPFAT to still continue f uh, funding it. So let's see what real-life situations does and PEPFAR has purchased uh, a lot of rings for to continue these trials and to continue these studies. And for us, that is that is something that we have to watch, but also that we are grateful for, because this is for our children. This is for our nieces, cousins, and our sisters, and mothers. And we need to make sure the ring gets into the hands of those who need it and who wants to use it. Now, I want to challenge you on one thing. Some people have said the ring, okay, it's nice to have. But actually, given that we have daily oral prep, we don't really need it. And the thing to do is to make taking oral pills um, more accessible and uh, more acceptable for, for girls and young women. Can you explain the challenges about why that is not the only answer? You, you know, Ben, when we spoke about to, to uh, you know, policymakers, developers, when we also spoke to implementers around uh, just why they didn't, they took a wrong direction with PrEP was the fact that first they introduced it to certain populations in my country, basically introduced it to sex workers first. Secondly, they in extended that introduction to uh, MSM and which made PrEP very difficult for us to, to promote because now this medication that is already an ARV, a highly stigmatized medication, was given to sex workers and was given to men who have sex with men and that was the reasons why this was very stigmatized and those are the challenges that we have to face. Women would like to take it but they're still scared of what it means to have uh, you know, your PrEP fall out because now you have to explain is it for, for HIV or is it for prevention? For treatment, yes. Because it is the same pill. And so people might think that you are actually, actually HIV, HIV positive. positive. Yes, and we told the policymakers, we told implementers, we told programmers, do not do that. But now we are here and now we're struggling. I had a young person interviewed her and she said she doesn't want that sound of the pill box in a school bag. So, yeah, we are here now. So... There's long-acting, there's choice, um, there's um, uh, the ring. Um, what else are you looking for at the conference? What data are you hoping to see? I'm hoping to see, but I'm hoping to hear more. I said this before, Ben. I said I want to hear more about uh, vaccines for HIV. I want to hear more about a cure and I want to some kind of commitment. My challenge is basically to Dr. Fauci. I think if you can do it for, for COVID, Dr. Fauci, you can do it for uh, HIV as well. So we need, because we are the ones who go back to the community, we, we have to explain why was a vaccine for COVID found so easily. And that doesn't make, as we were seeing outside people advocating and people protesting Dr. Fauci, doesn't make it easy on us because now 
Why is there no cure for HIV? Why is there no cure for AIDS? Why is there no vaccines for HIV? We have to answer those things in the community, Ben. Now, you're referring to a group of people standing outside the conference center, uh, part of a group, I guess, of anti-vaxxers that know that uh, Tony is on the uh, panel with you tonight. Um, and so I guess that's your your message to him. Um, we also have representatives of the UN. We have uh, PEPFAR, of course, the US government here in force. What are your messages for those for those organizations? Yes, my messages are very clear. And I mean, uh, uh, Ambassador John Nkenka Song, who's going to present tomorrow. I really, really look forward to his speech. And uh, as we celebrate 20 years, women have nothing to celebrate. Our girls are still getting infected. We are still stigmatized. In South Africa, women are still being killed. In Africa, LGBTQI people are still being killed. As they do their tours around Africa, they need to make those decisions behind the door and speak to their counterparts to take some of these harsh, harsh rules down against L against LGBTQI people. In South Africa specifically, I think uh, Ambassador needs to press on Cyril Ramaphosa, our president, to speak about, you know, gender-based uh, gen gender violence and femicide and talk about just how it's important that the, the, the judicial system supports women and understand gender-based violence as it is. Women now, let cannot me, let be cold in like that. Let me butt in there. You, you talked about Cyril and South Africa, but what about the African Union? What about other countries that are part of your network in the continent? What are so, the priorities there for John? The priorities, uh, Ben, as I'm going to be honest, as honest as I can be, these are just big brother clubs. These people never listen to each other. I want to be honest and say I want uh, Ambassador John to, to literally take Cyril and speak to him about gender-based violence in our country and how women are killed. I want him to speak to his counterparts as he does these tours into these countries, speak to the presidents as he meets with them in Africa around the issue of, of killing of LGBTQI people. We can no longer have people in Kenya kill uh, LGBTQI people the way do it, they do Uganda, all these countries where it's still okay for people to be killed, especially in Nigeria. That is just so heartbreaking that young people leave that country so that they can hide and live and be themselves in other countries. So I'm talking about this. These AUs, nobody can hold uh, the president, the president, past president of, of Zimbabwe accountable. They were smiling and laughing at him while people of Zimbabwe were suffering. So I don't believe in these big brother clubs. Now, you, you mentioned Nigeria, and I guess you were referring to our friend uh, and friend of the pod, uh, Michael Ligodaro, who... Yes, my um, son. Your son. Spe specifically, the son of the world, the son of, of the continent, because he took a risk and is speaking out against what's happening in Nigeria and his country. But most importantly, he is a is alienated from that country because of his of who he is and I don't want to talk about his gender I just want to say because of who he is because all of us are allowed to be who we want to be in this earth and on this world and to be free to do whatever we want to do now Michael of course joined the prevention access campaign and he, I believe, plays a major role in um, mobilizing communities across Africa around the U equals U message. Untransmissible equals 
Oh, how could I do that? You equals you. Uh, yeah. Untransmissible equals... No, no, it's undetectable. Undetectable means untransmittable. Yes. Bruce Richmond, you may kill me now for not remembering that. Just um, imagine, Ben. How do you do that? But it's a tongue twister. I'm going to also twist my tongue tonight. And I don't want anybody to laugh. So I'm interested to see what further data we can see, particularly in reservoirs. Um, that is to say, the lymph nodes uh, in in uh, people infected with HIV. We've been able... What's your face? What is that about? She's but, pulling a face at me. Yes, because all, all you guys want is to talk science, 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 science. What we want to hear around this is the fact that People cannot transmit HIV if they are on their medication. We want you just to say, like you believe it with your chest, that uh, treatment is prevention, that we were not dreaming that we were not infecting our partners because they did not want to use condoms or they did not believe we are HIV positive. Pain. We want to say those things. And we want the PrEP studies also to talk about uh, prep on demand for women. We want to know one, two nights, no sex, no, you know, those kind of now things. This is, Don't so, make it so difficult. Retroviruses and reservoirs, what's that? We're at a scientific conference, event. This is the one place where, where we can talk this stuff and get into the details. But look, here's the question for you. Make PrEP sexy. It's been something that has been really um, adopted, I think, pretty effectively in uh, the United States and Europe. Um, but um, and, and by the way, with the help of the pharmaceutical companies, I've got to say some of those PrEP adverts are incredible for gay men. But you're talking about making PrEP sexy for women. Yes, yes. Make it sexy for us. Make it sexy for us to use PrEP and to feel like we are using PrEP for ourselves, not for the world, not for fetuses, not for men, not for humanity. Just make PrEP sexy. Make me understand that if you'd have, take your PrEP tonight, baby, I'm going to be there. You see, the problem is also with the black bedroom. We cannot make appointments to have sex. Our husbands never come on time. So, yes, we understand that. But the idea is we need to make sex. Sexy. We need to make it sexy to have the pill. Did you see that picture of me having the prep mm -hmm. in my mouth? That is sexy. Is it? I yeah. take your word for it. <laughs> um, we also talked about cure, and I know that's something that's really important to you at this conference. We're going to hear more information about the uh, termination of the Mosaic trial, the vaccine that yeah that uh, Johnson and Johnson had been um, investing heavily in. Look at her, she's checking her phone. Checking on the activists, I think, are you? Yes, I'm, ju I'm just checking. My activist uh, people want to know if I put all their points in the... In the, in the speech. Yes, yeah. in the speech. Yeah. But yeah, we talk about the Mosaic trial, and I hope there's going to be some interesting information there um, that we can actually learn from for HIV, for the cure. Um, and... Um, HIV is certainly a really wily retrovirus. But as you've said, we've seen... Now, Mosaic was not an uh, mRNA uh, vaccine, but we have seen such progress with COVID, which would not have been possible without the investments in HIV vaccine research. So I'm really hoping to get to know a little bit more um, about the details of the termination and where we go from here. What is the strategy for the cure going forward?
Yeah, most most definitely. We can't stop the science now. We can't give up now. We're only going to give up if there's a cure. And currently there's no cure. We have to keep pushing. We have to understand this virus. We need to know why this virus keep changing, keep mutating, keep giving us just a hard, hard and difficult time. And I mean, really, now this has been too long. How many decades now? Three, four? Four decades. You know, there isn't a conference we go to where people say, well, the HIV vaccine is 10 years away. Every conference, every decade, it's still 10 years away. Yes, and that's kind of boring now. So the other things that I'm really interested in looking at are data around MPOX. Um, I'm really interested to understand why we had the outbreaks we had last year. MPOX has been around forever. It's particularly um, virulent in parts of West Africa, Nigeria especially. Um, and what happened last year? So I'm, I'm really interested in the data there. Yeah, I, I hope there's enough science and there's enough reports and people, uh, enough presentations to give us a, an idea about that and where we are currently, you know, with, 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 with monkeypox and um, just just how devastating it was for, for some communities. I mean, especially the LGBTQI community. I say researchers likes to do things and then the effects thereafter. They don't care because now monkeypox is being stigmatized as a gay disease and nobody is giving us updates. I mean, I hope to hear something about it. But Ben, COVID, long COVID, and the effects of COVID. I mean, we're also going into a, a, a process of being silent about COVID, but I want to know what of, uh, is of interest. For me, it's the long COVID, the fact that I'm still feeling fatigued around after my own diagnosis with COVID. But what are you looking for? Well, I guess the big question on my mind is the um, emergence of resistant virus the evolution of, of SARS-CoV-2. And the big question on my mind is whether SARS-CoV-2, whether COVID-19 is over, or whether we are entering yet a new phase. Um, there were reports in the uh, West Coast press, um, and I'm thinking of the San Francisco Chronicle particularly, um, that new variants that had come over from the East Coast um, were now really taking, taking hold in California and that the variants there were ones that were able to bypass um, immunity um, that was was built both through having uh, COVID, through infection, but also through the mRNA vaccine. So I think there's a lot there. And, and at the 38,000 foot level, there is, of course, pandemics preparation, uh, preparedness and response. And I think we, we really are in the era of pandemics. Um, there are all sorts of factors that go into this that go well beyond the science of this conference. The global economy, the impact on the environment, the, the close interaction that we have with um, our, our fellow animals on this planet. Um, but I really want to know what the uh, viro virology community is thinking about, you know, next pandemic threats as well. Yes, and, and importantly, how that intersects with uh, what we are fighting, which as women, which is HIV, is that, and matter-of-factly, very f few, a lot of young people did not go back to school. And that is worrying for me, because that means young people was found themselves in vulnerable positions after, after COVID. I can't, even, I can't even say after COVID, mm. but a lot of young people did not go back to school, Ben. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the wide, wide impacts of COVID education. I mean, I still come back to it. Let's not forget with the Ukraine war, 
uh, the invasion from Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin sitting at this huge marble desk with uh, um, government leaders from uh, from other countries sitting, you know, 20 feet away from him. That was his anxiety about COVID. What else did it do to him? Yes, but I want us, when we talk about, and this is what me and Vuiseka always tell you guys, when you talk about Ukraine, we must not forget Palestinians. You know, one of the things I also wanted to come back to you about is women leadership in governments. And, you know, we saw that the Prime Minister of New Zealand uh, stepped down because she was burnt out. We just have news this week that the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has also stepping down. Uh, I'm not a Scottish nationalist, but I'm a huge fan of her. And the information that she gave in daily briefings about COVID-19, I think, was an incredible service to the people of Scotland and, and beyond. Yeah, women's, uh, women leaders, is uh, the one thing is that people don't understand, I think, don't think the world understand that women would always lead with empathy. And we are mostly criticized for, for that leadership, where, that we want to baby, we want to feel so many things. And that is what makes our leadership so difficult. I don't think any of those women that you mentioned uh, re resigned because they could not lead, but they resigned because people did not understand women leadership style. And I think that is what the world has to come to, is that we are tired of the testosterone, we are tired of the patriarchy, Hey, let the patriarchy fall, man. Well, it is interesting that the, the, these women leaders knew when to step down. The same may not be said for either Boris Johnson from the UK or indeed uh, President, the former President Trump, the former guy in uh, the United States. Men must just step down. <laughs> Men must just step down. Well, talking of women leaders... Yeah. Uh, as we wrap up, we are hoping to meet this week with Kim Smith, who is the head of R&D at uh, Veef Healthcare. Uh, she is, I think, one of the very few leading pharmaceutical heads of, of R&D in the industry. And she's a woman of color. Uh, she's African-American. She's been a guest on the podcast, and we're really interested in learning more about uh, data on Cab LA the long-acting injectable in girls and women particularly. Yeah, and I'm excited too. I think she's a great leader and I've uh, read up on, on her. I've heard her speak. And like I said, the empathy comes through, Ben. We're also hopefully going to meet with Monica Gandhi from uh, San Francisco. She's done some really interesting research into the use of long-acting in marginalized populations. As you know, I'm the uh, chair of the San Francisco Community Health Center, and uh, we've been at the forefront of providing long-acting treatment to homeless and seriously mentally ill people, or I should say people with severe mental health challenges. So I really want to know uh, that we're getting data to demonstrate the, the value of using this intervention with them. Um, and I'm also hoping that we will get to speak to Heidi Larson, who is the founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project, but also the founder of the new Global Listening Project. So a very exciting week ahead of us, Arivette. Yeah, very exciting week of femininity and also bright, bright, bright women. So I'm looking forward to it. So with that, I guess we should let you... Get to your hotel and prepare for your opening plenary tonight. Uh, for those of you who listen to us rather than watch us, Yvette has got some remarkable nail polish on. Uh, yellow, orange and purple. To match her posse cost outfit, I guess, tonight, yeah? No, no. 
This is a statement that I'm bringing my community, the allies with. I'm bringing LGBTQI communities tonight on the stage, and I'm definitely bringing the trans community, men and women. So this is not just a fashion statement, it is also a sign of activism. So, yes. so with that, thank you so much for joining us. Um, that's it for this episode. Uh, thank you to our director, Erica Spera, who's working with us remotely, and our production assistant, Waisha Raphael. You'll find us, of course, on all major podcast platforms and on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars. And we will see you tomorrow.